if you plan to read along in your Bible with me, which I would encourage, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Many of you were here when I last spoke, and we, we talked our way through 1 John chapter 1. The plan is to talk our way all the way through the letter of 1 John. And so this week, I want to talk about chapter 2. You'll notice pretty quickly that chapter 2 is much longer than chapter 1. So um, chapter 1, I felt like we got to talk at least some about every verse in chapter 1. We probably won't be able to do that in chapter 2. Um, but I appreciate some of the songs Blake led fit very well with the themes of John's writings. Um, talking about being near to God and abiding with him. Um, that's definitely what John writes about, and so I appreciate that. Um, John, being the probable author of this letter, and that is the Apostle John, the one whose brother James was killed in the book of Acts, um, is writing to what we would often call like a general audience, but it seems like even though he never says you know, to the Ephesians, it seems like churches like Ephesus would have been the churches that he was writing to. Um, scholars say that he would have been writing to churches in what we call Turkey, which would include places like Ephesus. And there's a lot of history that says that he spent a good amount of time in Ephesus. In fact, if you were to visit there today on a tour, a Christian tour, a religious tour, they would show you the burial place of John. That is allegedly where he ended up when he passed away. And so it makes a lot of sense to say that the Ephesians probably were reading this letter. Um, and so I wanted to offer that again as a reminder to the writer and the audience of this. Um, but through First John, we see a couple themes introduced to us um, that we're going to continue in Second John. One is this idea of light that John likes to use. Um, and he uses it in different ways, but God is always light. He'll always, that's a consistency in John's writing. Truth and God are always pictured as light. Sin, fleshliness, worldliness, those kinds of things. Hate are pictured as dark. And God is always a part of the light. And depending on your choices and your actions, you can be with God in the light or you can be with the world in the darkness. That was shown to us in chapter 1. He also talks a lot about fellowship. The reason you want to be in the light is because God is in the light and he wants to have fellowship with you. Um, and if you're in the darkness, coincidentally, you do not have fellowship with God, just as darkness doesn't really mingle with light. right? You have one or the other. That's how it is with God. right? You are with God or you are not. John paints in absolutes. Right? And he uses a lot of language that seems very simple and plain, and I think it is in many ways. I think that's when I was talking to Blake, one of the reasons he likes the book of John is it just seems so simple. It's like if you can just love your brother, you know you're doing what's right. You know, if you can just love the truth, it'll abide in you and you'll walk with God. It seems so simple, and yet he paints these very um, deep, meaningful pictures and and applications through these simple images. And we're going to continue that in chapter 2. And so I would like to read kind of section by section and say a little bit about it and then work through chapter 2 that way. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. One of the things that I pointed out a couple weeks ago with chapter 1 is that John gives us purpose statements. He'll say things like, I'm writing to you, and then he'll say something. Sometimes it's so that, or he might even say, I'm writing to you, little children. But he gives us these purpose statements. Unlike what we might expect, he gives a bunch of them to us. Uh, we, we don't just get one at the very beginning of the book. We did see in chapter 1 that he says that, um, that God is light and him is no darkness. Right? But in chapter 2, we also have, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. I am under the impression, and this is my opinion, that perhaps this is maybe the most practical purpose statement that John gives. In chapter 1, he says, I'm writing to you so that your joy may be made complete. Um, I think that's maybe the, the theme of the book. Like, how do you have complete joy? How do you have that? Well, obviously, fellowship with God in light, right? But maybe the most practical thing is, well, don't sin, right? Like, how do you have complete joy? Well, John's going to say, well, like, don't get involved with darkness, don't walk in hypocrisy. He's going to say these things, right? Like avoid sin. One temptation for us, I think, and apparently for Christians, was maybe to ignore like the idea of sin. Well, like, oh, I'm, I'm with God. I'm with Jesus. I believe that stuff. Like maybe sin's not a, an issue anymore. Like God will maybe smooth over that or not worry about it or whatever. And John is saying, you know what? Like you need to realize sin is real. You need to know that like you need to avoid that. Um, that's a really basic thing, but I think I, I have struggled with that in the past and in the present, like ignoring the reality of sin. And I imagine you have too. And I know we've all seen people that do that, uh, whether you have or not in your life. John acknowledges the reality of sin. In fact, at the end of chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, if we say we don't have sin, right, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But yet in verse 9, he said, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Um, and so in chapter 2, verse 1, he's saying, so I'm writing to you that you won't do that. Like you won't be in a position of sinfulness, right? Now, here's the problem. It is clear that sin is real. It is clear from chapter 1 that we've all done it. And so what is John really saying? When he says in verse 1 that I'm writing so that you will not sin. It seems to me to, to show like kind of a timeline. Like you need to acknowledge that you have sin or you've had sin or that you've sinned. Or you're a liar. Like the truth's not in you. Like that is the message of Jesus. I've come to forgive those trespasses, right? But he's writing to people who... From chapter 1, they have heard, they have seen, they have known through people like John, right? That they had a joy that John was helping them like fulfill, complete, make perfect. 
that they have heard a message in chapter 1, verse 5, and have been proclaimed that message. So these are people that are believers. And so my impression of chapter 2, verse 1, is that like, hey, you've acknowledged your sin. You haven't deceived yourselves. You've been cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now let's stay that way. Like let's operate with the reality that sin affects us. It's a problem. We've been cleansed from it. And let's, let's move forward in a way that we continue with God in light. I think that's what he's saying here. So he's not saying like, hey, sin's inevitable. Don't worry about it. But he's also not saying like sin is unconquerable. Right? He's saying like, you've been forgiven. You've acknowledged it. Now I'm going to give you some tools that you need to like avoid that problem. Right? Avoid those, mes- uh, those errors. Christians should be concerned about sin. And that's why John's writing. In fact, I think that's practically maybe one of the most important reasons john says he's writing is that like we need to have a concern for sin do you concern yourself with sin and i don't mean an unhealthy preoccupation but i mean just the reality of it like do you think i'm gonna live today so that i may not sin i think that's what john is hoping that maybe these ephesians or whoever is reading this would be doing like look at what i'm telling you and use it so that you won't sin but that's not all he says. It's not just like, hey, the reality of sin exists. You need to worry about it. In fact, what he says in verse 2 is like, hey, don't forget. There's like there's stuff in place that God has done for us. That for those of us who are in fellowship with him, right? That we, we have the message. We believe. Like there, there's a solution to this, right? Verse 2 says... He is the propitiation for our sins. Right? Jesus Christ the righteous is mentioned at the very end of verse 1. He is that propitiation. Propitiation is kind of a weird word. I'm not even sure how to say it totally. I've heard it said like four or five different ways. I always just think initiation and then I just add this to it. Propitiation. But that could be wrong. I don't know. But it's kind of also a weird word not only to say but sort of to define. Um, I'm not sure that will... You know, anyone has the fullest idea of what it is, but it always carries a sense of like an offering. Some senses even kind of paint it as like a gift. Some senses even kind of pay it, paint it as like what is owed or due. But most contexts are between men, humans, and deities, false or real. Right? Like, in fact, one of the common uses of this is. A sacrifice to like an idol is like you have to make a propitiation you have to make an offering or or give what is due right it's kind of a weird word but i think that kind of gets us close to what we're saying here is is that jesus is that like there's something that god is owed that is due to him he needs that gift he requires it and jesus is the one that supplies it and what he supplies is himself he like satisfies that in himself. And obviously the cross is that story, right? The cross is how he does that. So he is a propitiation. When you read that word, just think of it that way. But not only for you and me, not only for believers, but he did that for the whole world. But one interesting thing to know about this is John isn't saying the whole world's forgiven. In fact, the whole one of the big messages of his writing is that, and we're going to get into this in later in chapter two, is you don't love the world. Jesus offered himself as a gift or an offering for the whole world. But like there needs to be a separation between you and the world. 
And so there's an idea here that like there's a propitiation, but not necessarily fellowship, right? Not everybody has forgiveness, even though everybody has opportunity to have the gift of the offering of Jesus. And so he's saying here, look, Christians, the reality of sin is real, but there's a gift that has been given on your behalf by Jesus the righteous to the Father who takes care of the sins of you and everybody else that needs that gift, right? In verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Okay, so here is kind of the most practical side of even that you may not sin is that if you keep the commandments. How do you know that Jesus was your gift to God? Well, if you keep the commandments. You'll know that that has done its job because you've, you've kept the commandments. You're living in that gift. How do you know that you're not sinning? Well, I'm keeping the commandments. How do I know I have fellowship with God? Well, I'm keeping the commandments. How do I know I'm walking in light? Well, I'm keeping the commandments. Right? I think that is not the fullest answer to any one issue, but maybe is the most practical answer to our concerns of am I with God? Am I not? Am I forgiven? Am I not? Well, are you keeping the commandments? Like that might be the most plain indicator of some of those things. And that's what John says. And anyone who does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Christians, you and me, we can assess our relationship with God by whether or not we're walking like he walked. I can tangibly know pretty quickly, if I'm honest with myself, whether I'm in fellowship with God or not, by whether my walk looks like Jesus' walk. Now there's a propitiation, there's a gift, and I can have forgiveness for the times that I messed that up. But I can be honest and know whether I'm right now in fellowship with God or not. That doesn't have to be a damning thing, but it does help me assess where I'm at right now. Right? And that's what John is merely saying. So John never uses, I don't think he ever uses the word hypocrisy in his writing, but his writing is all about hypocrisy. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But John is concerned about those that he loves, that he's proclaimed a message to, not sinning. All right, so let's read the next section, verses 7 on down. 7 on down. Beginning in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light and in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and uh, does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. All right, let's just stop there for a moment. Really the commandment that's spoken of in this is to love your brother. He doesn't actually like kind of say it in that positive sense until a few verses in. He says, at first, in fact, 
don't hate your brother. And then he goes on to say, you love your brother, right? That's, that's the commandment that's in discussion. And John says it's new and it's old. I don't know in what sense he means that it's new and it's old. I thought of a couple possibilities. One is it's old in that Christians have been told that from the beginning of their walk with Christ. You need to love your brother. And so maybe John is following back as an old man years later to these people that have heard this for a long time and saying, look, it's a new commandment, but it's an old commandment. Because Jesus even said uh, in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I loved you and also you love one another. So maybe he's saying Jesus gave it as new. You've been hearing it for years. So in one sense, it's new. One sense, it's old. Maybe he's saying that. Maybe he's saying it's old in the sense of like, as long as God has been communicating to a people, he's been telling them, you got to love your neighbor. You got to love your brother, right? Certainly there's plenty of commandments in the Old Testament that, that say that. Like They don't maybe say it in that exact language, but I mean, how many commandments of the law are concerned with like, doing right by your brother, right? And so maybe in that sense, if anyone in Turkey was like familiar with those writings, those Old Testament Jewish writings, it's old. And yet Jesus makes it new. But either way, what I find interesting is that Jesus does make it new. Right? Whether it was old from the Old Testament, right? But Jesus says in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Why is it new? I think it's because of the next part, as I have loved you. That you also love one another. What's important about this is I think Jesus whether these people have known about it from the Jewish writings of old or whether they've known about it in the years of their walk as a Christian. Jesus made it new because he, like John said, gave us a walk in which we were to walk. Like if you want to know how to love your brother, you walk like Jesus walked. You love like he loved. Ultimately, the cross is the fullest sense of that. Jesus talked about that in John either 14 or 15. I didn't write it down. I always remember it. I think it's 15 verse 13, right? For a friend, one would scarcely die. But yet, who is Jesus dying for? Even his enemies, right? In fact, we know who a a neighbor is because of the story that Jesus gives us about the Samaritan. Like, we're always looking for excuses. Like, okay, well, I get it. I need to love my brother, but like, who's really my brother? It's a pretty small group of people, right? And Jesus tells us the story about your brother is basically whoever's in need when you're around, right? Like you pass by someone on the side of the road that's left for dead. You know, the priest wasn't the brother or the neighbor. It's the Samaritan who ended up being kind of that brother neighbor, right? How do I love my brother? Well, Jesus gave us a new commandment to do it like he did it. And that's what John wants them to remember because darkness is passing away and the true light, and I would say Jesus is shining. He's walking, right? And like we know what that is. And so if I say I'm a Christian, which is to say I'm of the light, and yet I pass by that person beat up on the road, or I don't take care of who I would consider my enemy, well, what John is saying here is I'm still in darkness, now, I can know that because I'm not like Jesus, right? I read this and I thought this was interesting. It's been said that 
the cross shows love in four never before seen ways. And I think this is kind of cheesy, but kind of interesting because they use the imagery of the cross. They say wide enough to include every person long enough to last through eternity, deep enough to reach even the most guilty sinner and high enough to take us to heaven. Kind of a cheesy way to think about it, but it's true. Jesus's commandment is new because he showed us that, right? That God's love is those things. It does accomplish every one of those things and has the capability, the capacity to do them all. And so while I'm a person, I'm certainly not Jesus. I should be aspiring to reach in all of those directions and capacities. So some, some would say, and maybe you're in this camp, I kind of am, if I'm being honest about it. Some would say that Christianity would be easy if it weren't for all the Christians. You know, if it was just them and God, like it would be a lot easier than dealing with people, right? Um, in fact, many Christians, and I think this is true, many Christians like bear the hurt and the scars that they receive from other Christians, right? Um, but the fact remains that John says if we can't love our brother... We're in darkness. Wouldn't it be a lot easier to love my brother if there were no brothers to love? <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, okay. Conceptually, that's a great idea, but I never actually have to stretch myself to do it, right? But the reality is we have a lot of people to love, even if we're only, I mean, I don't think the command is only Christians, but let's just say it's only Christians. That's still really, really hard because a lot of you guys are hard to love. And I know you're looking at me thinking, Josh can be hard to love. Like, that's just being honest about it. And it's maybe not all the time every day, but there's instances where I'm hard to love. There's instances where you're hard to love. But the bottom line is, John says, hey, if you can't do it, you're in darkness. Right? There's no light in that moment for someone like that. Right? But again, let's anchor ourselves in verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation, Right? And in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. We don't have to be stuck in that, but that is the reality. In that moment, I'm in darkness, and I do need to confess, right? All right, so what John says here is important for us to remember, but whoever loves his brother abides in light, right? Well, guess what? They have fellowship with God because that's where God is. He is light. Um, okay. So let's, let's move forward here in verse 12. This is where uh, things get a little more interesting for me personally. Verse 12, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Uh, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is interesting to me because John 
specifies groups of people that he's writing to. The thing is, though, he's not, like, super specific. I think maybe the most realistic reading of this is these, these age brackets are probably spiritual brackets. I couldn't argue for sure. But that seems to make the most sense to me. But whatever the case is, he's divided up the audience into these specific groups. And I'm going to talk about it in kind of spiritual terms because minimally that's true. What do people who have just begun to follow Christ need to be reminded of? Well, John thinks that they need to be reminded that their sins are indeed forgiven. If you can think back to the time that you first believed, wasn't that like the linchpin of it all? Like that's the thing that moves you from unbelief to belief is the conviction of sin and the relief of sin. And if any, at any point in my early walk with God, I start to lose my traction, it's maybe because of that and forgetting it or being confused about it or someone muddying that truth up, right? John says that, you know, that little child needs to remember that their sins are forgiven. And in fact, he writes in verse 13 at the end there, you know the Father. That's also, I think, foundational. It's like, yeah, you want your sins forgiven. I think that's probably the conviction that led me to be a Christian was like, I know I've done a bunch of junk and I really believe I'm going to be called on it one day. And I need to be forgiven of that junk. That was like the driving force in my belief at the beginning, right? Very, very quickly, like 1B was like, I started to feel like I knew God. Like I started to actually have a relationship and it felt tan like, hey, I actually kind of know God now. That's what he's writing in verse 13. I write to you children because you know the Father. Um, I've, I've had a lot of fr I'm getting to that age now where a lot of my friends are starting to have kids. Um, I've probably been in this age for a few years now, but like it's especially true now because the last holdouts are even having kids, right? So one of the first things that you see in kids, right, is they know who their mom and dad is. Like before they can crawl, before they can walk, and they will let you know if they want mom or dad. Like sometimes when you try to pass them off, they freak out because you're not mom, you're not dad, right? Spiritually, like we know that first probably, right? Like I know I have sin. I know I need to be forgiven because I know the Father. And I think that's what John wants these little children in Christ in the walk to know. But he also writes to fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Think about what this might mean spiritually. I think of this kind of like the old men. And old is relative, but just think old men, right? The fathers of in the faith, so to speak. They have known him who is from the beginning. Like they've built their life on that, right? Just like children know their father. I think it's interesting that fathers, it adds from the beginning, like the weight of knowing the father has really settled on these people. They've been fathers maybe for a little while, but they know the father who's been the father from forever. Right? There's like a, a consistency, a steadfastness in that. 
Right? And he also says in verse 14 the same thing. Like, you've known him who's from the beginning. Like, you've known the consistent one. And it seems like their life has borne some consistency, like their fathers. Right? Like, they've been with it for a while. So you have the babies, you have the old men, and then you have the people in the middle. Right? He says young men in verse 13 and in verse 14. What do they need? Well, they need to know that they've overcome the evil one. They also need to know that they're strong and the word of God abides in them. I think about this in terms of a battle, right? Like you don't see, you don't send little like kids into a fight. You don't really send old men into a fight. You send like everybody in the middle, right? They're the ones that need to know they're going to win or that they are winning. And they're the ones that need to feel strong and they need to know that they have the right cause, right? And that's what John's telling them. Like, you're winning. You're fighting for the right causes. Like, the truth is in you. You're strong enough to do it and keep doing it, right? All of these things, uh, assuming, and I think minimally they're spiritual truths. They may even be specific to ages. I don't know. All of these things, I think, come before this next section but relate to this next section because there's some people that are maybe telling them those things are not true Uh, or maybe they've been convinced that they're not true through the experiences they've had with someone even if they haven't said it outright so let's read um kind of this next section um or let's talk about this next section and it'll tie into the next reading do not love the world right john's telling them things to anchor in to love to know And then he goes right on and says, don't love the world. And in fact, he divvies it up into kind of three categories, right? For all the stuff that's in the world, and we say it this way usually, the pride of uh, the flesh, the pride of the eyes, the pride of life. Sometimes how we say it. Your translation may render them slightly different. There's stuff to know, to be a part of. Little children know the Father, right? Little children know that your sins are forgiven. But there's stuff to not know. And that is the lust of the eyes. Stuff to not know is lust of the flesh. Don't get caught up in the pride of life. Whether you're a little child, whether you're a father, whether you're a young man, you don't have any part with what the world has to offer you. Because in verse 17, where does it take you? Well, it takes you wherever it's going, and wherever it's going is passing away. You know, where it doesn't take you is to eternal life. Verse 17 says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Right? Now, the question to me is always, like, why is John writing this? If you notice, like I said, John has multiple purpose statements. Most of them are contained, actually, in chapter 2, and it's because of this section. I'm writing to you little children. I'm writing to you fathers. I'm writing to you young men. Those are all purpose statements. Um. But why, why is he writing these purpose statements? I think they're anchored in maybe this next part. Um, I think they're generally true and helpful, but maybe particularly necessary because of what he writes about these antichrists that have come. Um, so let's read this text in verse 18. Beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. And I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you've received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and it is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. John describes those who are against God, right? anti, they're against God, and will tempt others to be as well, it seems. And so what is for sure? Like, what do we know about these antichrists? Because I hear that term tossed around a lot. It has a lot of particular meaning when I hear people talk about it, but it definitely has a lot of really ambiguous meaning when I hear people talk about it. And I think there is some ambiguity. Like we don't have names named, we don't have specific doctrine you know, described, but we do have some specifics. For instance, verse 18, they're anticipated. Verse 18, they're already there. Verse 19, they went from among us, right? So apparently the believers knew who they were. Maybe even used to like have fellowship with them. Verse 19, but it's distinct that they're not of us. They're not walking the same walk. They don't hold the same teachings true, right? Verse 22, they are liars. In fact, in verse 21, one of the purpose statements of John is, I'm writing to you because you know the truth, right? In verse 22, they're trying to deceive you. Verse 22, they deny the Christ. Verse 26, they're deceivers. Again, another purpose statement of John in verse 20 things, or 20 things, 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, right? So you're trying to arm them with what's real. So I don't know what these guys are saying. Obviously, they're anti-Jesus. They're anti-God. They're denying them. But beyond that, I don't really know the specifics of how or when or why. But I do know that John is concerned that they will be deceived and accept the lies. Right? Perhaps that's why he says, hey, little children, you need to know that your sins are forgiven. Right? Like Maybe they're getting mixed up and thinking maybe they're not. Which, let's be real... If I begin to think my sins haven't been forgiven, that is a huge reason to change my belief. Like that's what got me on the train in the first place, right? And if I don't feel like maybe I actually know the Father, then maybe again I give up something that I thought I knew to do something else, right? Maybe that's why John writes that, you know, and on down the line with fathers and young men. Maybe that's why. Maybe they're telling the young men, you're not actually like overcoming, like you're, you're doing this and this wrong and like you're not progressing like you should be because you misunderstand this and Jesus wasn't who he said he was and blah, 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 blah. Well, you need to know you're actually overcoming and you are strong and the word is with you. Maybe that's why he writes all that. So what does John want them to know is for sure 
about those who continue to follow Jesus? Well, he wants them to know in verse 19 that they're going to continue with John and the others. Like John or, John is sticking with it. right? Verse 20, that they have been anointed. Verse 21 and 24, that they know, and the emphasis is really you already know the truth. Right? In fact, that's again one of the purpose statements. And we go back to verse 1, right? You know the truth, why? So you may not sin. Verse 22 and 23, that they know for sure that they have the Father and they have the Son. Right? Verse 24, for sure that the Word is abiding in them. Verse 25, that they definitely have eternal life. That's a big one, right? Even to the little children. Verse 27 and 28, John says, you don't need anything else. That's for sure. I wanted to point all this stuff out, not just to like say, hey, we taught all the way through 1 John 2, but because obviously it was important to John's audience. I think it's still important to us. Like whatever comes our way that tries to like expound on or manipulate or maybe even outright change or disagree with the things that Jesus taught and his apostles advocated for. I think John would write the same thing to us today if something like that happens. He would say, hey, you already have the word of God. It's already abiding in you. You already have the advocate. You already have the propitiation. You can just confess. You're in the light unless you are hating your brother, right? You need to remember that you know the Father, you have forgiveness, that you are overcoming, you're strong, the Word abides with you, that you've known Him who's from the beginning. You don't need anything else, right? I'm really, really tempted because maybe my circumstances, because of the time and place I've grown up, maybe my own personality, I'm really, really tempted to want something new. Maybe you're not like that, but I'm always trying to find a new angle to do something differently to... I need to remember that John would tell me, you've already got what you need. And just stick with it. Because in verse 25, we have a promise of eternal life. The promise hasn't changed. The conditions haven't changed. And if like you're with God, you're walking in the light, you have that promise. Finally, verses 28 and 29. Little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you stick with God's truths, what John is saying, then you have nothing to fear. When judgment comes, you don't shrink away. You don't live in fear of judgment. You don't, I would add this, you're not going to speculate wildly about the terms of judgment, because you're walking in the light. You know that when he does come, that you'll have the promise of eternal life. Right? And everyone who practices righteousness, that's observable, right? You love your brother. You keep the commandments. You know him who's from the beginning. Then everyone that you see, including yourself, that fits that criteria has been born of God. I hope this has been helpful for you. Uh, I know it's, it can, I can be a little rambly just going through any kind of thing that I'm talking about, but hopefully you haven't lost sight of what John's trying to get to here. That God is the light. 
we can have fellowship with him. And just as we've sung about and we've read about, we need to abide with him. And any new thing that tries to manipulate or change that, John would just tell us, forget it. Just walk, keep the commandments, live in the light. I hope that's helpful for you. I'm not sure whatever's going on in your life that may be challenging you right now or whatever sins you may be tempted by or succumbing to. But I'd hope that just as John wrote, you'd acknowledge it. Don't deceive yourself. If it's there, be honest about it. Know that you can confess it. And Jesus is not only faithful, he's just to forgive you of that and cleanse you from unrighteousness. And that John would say, hey, and moving forward, live in a way that you don't sin. Walk in a way that you don't sin. So that's my advice to you today. Whichever part of that scheme you need to start at, start there today. And do that while we're singing this song.